Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Angle on Producers, the show where we spotlight producers from all corners of the entertainment industry to understand who they are, what they do, and how they sustain themselves doing it. As always, I am your host and fellow producer, Carolina Gropa. However you found the show, thank you so much for being here, tuning in as often as you do and doing this live thing with me. If you subscribe to my newsletter, which I hope you do, and then you got my newsletter last week, then you know there are some exciting changes coming up ahead for the show. And if you're one of those people going, wait, what? She has a newsletter? Yes, I do. I've not been great about being uh, consistent with it, but that is going to change. And so I highly recommend you checking it out and subscribing. You can sign up on angleonproducers.com. It includes thoughts and tips and resources and interesting slash inspiring reads or watches for your pleasure. Also, if you're an OG, a regular of the show, please take a moment to follow, rate, and review the show on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. I always love hearing from you and this support helps me attract partners so that I can continue supporting our community. Speaking of partners, I am thrilled to announce that AOP has found its first official sponsor. Synapse is an app that streamlines workflows for film and TV crews, cast members, and studio employees. What they're building is truly game changer. One of the biggest problems we face in production management is that we have to use a dozen different softwares that often don't communicate or share information between them. It's really labor intensive and oftentimes it's hard to be eco-friendly because of that. In February of 2020, a background actor named Craig Cafera and a set PA named Herman Phillips met on the set of The Mandalorian. They started talking about how the entire background voucher and management process would be much more efficient if it was automated with an app. And thus, Synapse was born. Greg, Herman, and countless others from the production trenches build the system of record for Hollywood, one app to manage all logistics, communication, and documentation for cast, crew, unions, and studios. They have many offerings, but Synapse Background is what's currently on the market, and it's the easiest way to manage thousands of background vouchers digitally. They are cleared for use at most major studios and are SAG-AFTRA approved, which is huge. I'll post all the goodies about them in the show notes, tag them on the socials. There's even a mini-sode coming your way with Herman so we can dive deep into the story and the significance of Synapse. But for now, check them out at synapse.io. That's C-I-N-A-P-S-E dot I-O. Now, it is such a delight to share my conversation with the fierce Elizabeth Cantillon. She is a producer and principal at Bisous Pictures, a romance label under MRC Film. She most recently produced an adaptation of Jane Austen's Persuasion, starring Dakota Johnson, which has been streaming on Netflix since July. A Los Angeles native, Elizabeth has extensive experience working as a studio exec and as a producer. She also had a brief stint at UCLA where she taught screenplay development for producers. She shares a few excellent book tips and resources on producing and other aspects of filmmakers in the show. It's also linked in show notes. I highly recommend you check them out. Elizabeth previously served as the EVP of production at Columbia Pictures. During her time there, she oversaw Academy Award winners, The Social Network, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and the last four installments of James Bond movies, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, and Spectre. Overall, the films she has worked on as a studio exec have garnered more than $300 million in the box office worldwide. In 2014, Elizabeth left Columbia to go back to her first love of producing with a first-look deal at Sony under the Cantillion Company. Elizabeth is resilience and patience personified. 
Coming up at a time when there were even less women in the business, she urges all the young women coming up to take some time and channel some of the energy into women's rights. Because without women's rights, equality and gender parity as producers is also going to be challenging. A few gems from this episode include the differences between a studio exec and a producer, how true gender parity in film production can be achieved, and the importance of setting boundaries for yourself. So without further ado, here's Elizabeth. I am so excited to have you on the show. In researching you, it was a kind of mind-boggling with the amount of success you've had in your career, how little exists online about you. And I was wondering how you've been able to kind of, with the way that everything is so accessible now at the internet, how you've been able to kind of stay away from all of that if, if that was an intentional choice for you or or if it's because no one's asked to interview you. Well, it's funny because I think there's way too much stuff about me online. So interesting. <laughs> you know, when you're a studio executive, it's not about you, right? So you're not forward. And so when I became a, you know, I was a producer and studio executive, producer, studio executive. So I've been producing I've done a lot of different press, but producers don't, nobody cares about that. You make a Will Smith movie. It's not like anybody wants to talk to me, but it's not like that. But I think I spent so much of my, so many years as an executive that that's just not where anybody's really interested in. And, and they discourage it. Like you're not definitely not put forward men or women. Yeah. And why is that? Because I feel like perhaps with social media, so much of that has changed. You now see like executives on panels and people getting tagged on Instagram. And there's such a, it feels like there's such a shift in like, you got to have a brand of some sort. If you are going to have a presence, it has to be curated. And I certainly feel those pressures, of course, now that I'm an executive, I guess. But I wonder if it's just the times. But you're an executive for a famous person. Right. So that's, I think that's different. Maybe if I was a partner with Angelina Jolie or Jennifer Aniston or something, maybe you'd know more about the person. But certainly there's much more press coverage of the business of the movie and television business than there used to be. Yeah. I'm grateful for it because I hope it helps people kind of demystify a little bit of the inner workings of Hollywood. And I feel like so many people part of the mysticism is just figuring it out. And unless you're lucky enough to get into a mailroom and go up that track where you kind of really get to see the machine at play, it takes a long time to understand how it truly functions. And even when you're on the inside, you're still like, how does this work exactly? You know, there's always such a mystery. And nowadays I feel like the moment you think you've got it figured out, it changes. (laughs) So, Well, also because the cultures at the different places are so different. So you could have it knock in one place and then move someplace else and have to really start from scratch to try to figure out what's the internal logic, what's the dynamic, what are the goals that they're aiming at, which could be totally different from wherever you came from. Yeah, no, that's true. Well, speaking and starting from scratch, I'd love to bring it back to the beginning of your journey and how you found yourself into producing because, you know, I read that you obviously were exec for a long time and then you went back to producing and you say that that was like your first love. So walk me through just that journey and when you discovered that. Well, I went to college and I have a degree in film theory and criticism, right? So I I really love film, film literacy. It's important to me. And my first few jobs were not in film. They were in television. And then I had the opportunity to work with the producer, Michael Shamberg and Harold Ramis. And 
And that was in the eighties. And that was the beginning of producing. And I loved the freedom of it. I liked the purposefulness of it. You know, the kind of merry band of brothers that you create every time you make a movie that you start from the beginning, you have to meet a whole bunch of new people and start a whole new company. And then it goes away and then you do it again. And I really, really liked that, I think, and made a few movies with them and then with the producer, Mark Johnson. And, but I think that what happened for me personally and specifically is that at the time when my children were young, production started to migrate away from Los Angeles. So even though I had made everything here up until like, I guess, you know, the beginning of 2000s, it was obvious that if I wanted to keep producing, I was going to have to be gone from home. I didn't want to do that. Then I thought, well, I'll just go get one of these jobs. And everybody was like, really? You're just going to go get one? I said, I think so. And then I did, right? So I got a job at MGM, which was kind of a studio, barely a studio at that time, but it qualified. And so then Sony bought MGM for a quick minute. Sony owned MGM in this was like 2005, I guess. They bought MGM and then I had worked with Amy Pascal at Turner Pictures and I knew her. She was a friend of mine. And she was like, well, you should just... Yeah, you guys went to school together, right? From what I read. We didn't go to school together, but we went to... We grew up in LA and we knew each other, but we went to different schools. Okay. Yeah. She went to UCLA. I went to Berkeley. She went to Crossroads. I went to Beverly High. Right. So, but we grew up around. Can I just ask real quick, like what, as a person who is not from LA, just what is it like growing up in LA and being a kid immersed seemingly whether or not you want to be in entertainment because you go to these schools. I'm sure a lot of your friends are children of parents that are in the business, even if your parents weren't. And I always wonder what it's like from the perspective of a child who grows up in that, especially if you end up in the in the business. It wasn't a thing. It wasn't. Oh, interesting. It wasn't the thing that it is now. And it wasn't at all the, I didn't know what people's parents did. I didn't know, unless their parents were movie stars. And so if you knew like, Lucille Ball's kids, <laughs> like it was like, you know, like that. But I didn't know anybody whose parents worked in the movie business, except for like that. Like I went to Catholic school. So the Catholic celebrities sent their kids to the Catholic school. So Rosemary Clooney, her kids, I grew up with them. And so it was like, it wasn't at all like it is now. And my family was not in the business. Amy Pascal's family was not, it just wasn't a thing. So when I graduated from college, I didn't know anybody. I got my job out of the Hollywood Reporter. So, I mean, they used to have a classified section in the print edition. And that's how everybody I knew got their jobs. Yeah, that's good to highlight because I think some people may have the perception, if you're an outsider, not from here, that people who are from here automatically have this inroad to Hollywood. It might be a little different now. It might be a little different, but I think it more happens in college, really, because I think some of these colleges are feeders to Hollywood. So whether it's USC or NYU or Penn or even Harvard, I think a lot of these schools feed the kids network and then that's how it all happens. I think that's probably a little more potent than if your dad is an agent at Endeavor. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, okay. So back to then you were in this MGM when it was still baby, baby, tiny. It was just like it was always being sold. So it was like, they were still making James Bond movies. I did not work on James Bond at MGM. But when I got to Sony, I did work on James Bond movies. And that was a real privilege and really fun. And then in like 2016 or 15, I can't remember, I said to Amy, like, all right, my kids are gone. I've had to travel anyway to work on all these movies because nothing shoots her still. 
So I just would rather go back to producing. And she said, okay, well, then you have to go produce the concussion movie with Will Smith. And I was like, well, of course. You have to. I have to. You just have to, yeah. (laughs) And then I had a deal there, a first look deal there. But then Amy, then the hack happened and then Amy left. And then um, then she had a first look deal there. Yeah. At that time, going and transitioning from an executive, studio executive into a producer, how was that shift for you? And will you describe a little bit, just from your perspective, the biggest differences between an executive's role and the producer's role? It's a good question. I was, having been a producer before I was an executive, I feel like I brought more producerial strategies to that job than maybe somebody who's never been a producer because you can't really know what it's like until you do it. I know there's a lot of presumptuousness on the part of executives who think, well, and a lot of disdain for producers from a lot of studios about what producers contribute to the process. But I'm a big believer in the producer is the difference between the movie being bad or good and budget on budget, all that. I mean, like you're on the front lines of everything. And I think the usually a producer, unless you're someone like Neil Moritz or something, you're producing one movie at a time, right? And if you're an executive, you're supervising usually more than one movie. So the singleness of purpose and the focus of a producer cannot be accomplished at the same level of detail and impact by a studio executive. Yeah, it's a great... Being a studio executive is easy, okay? It's not a hard job. I would say comparatively, right? Because you're people are coming to you constantly, especially if you're, you're the person who gets the green light everything. There's so much power there. Yes, I mean, I never was a green lighter. I mean, there's a committee. Right, but I used to say that I was like a pasha. Like I just sit here and everybody arrives and I then say my wisdom and then they leave. And it was, you know, it was pretty odd. I mean, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of internal pressure. There's politics. All the things are real as a studio executive and you have to navigate that. But the actual work, the on the ground, boots on the ground kind of work of doing a, being a producer and managing all those personalities, that's not the same as being a studio executive. It's a different beast. It's a different skill set. And I think it's a different way to run a similar race, if you will. You just have to have different just a different bandwidth for it all. I often think about, I wish that there was everyone that does end up becoming an executive or an agent. Like part of that training is you would have to have had some onset experience actually being in the front lines of something as part of your training when you start out. Because even if that's not where you want to be, I think it would create a more collaborative industry when you understand the domino effect that can occur, especially when you're in active production. And I'm specifically thinking of When, for example, reps request for you to shift dates for talent and they take forever to get back to you and they have no idea how that impacts 300 people that are waiting for an email to do their jobs, right? And I wish that there was a little bit more curiosity because I feel like there's this, like the executives and the agents to me feel like the white collar of Hollywood. And then everyone on the ground is blue collar, right? Doing the thing, trying to make a living. And so I wish there was a little bit more of that curiosity to just understand what it's like to be a person who lives the lifestyle of a crew member and is constantly on set. And again, in the front lines, in the trenches of doing the work. And what's boggling to me, mind boggling, is that all that development, all that time, millions of dollars on the line, right? And that is literally all of the things culminate to that period of time that is so precious and so high in intensity for production. And so to not have some of this thinking and how that investment early on would benefit 
the process and probably save a lot of money from a purely fiscal perspective. I just find it interesting that that doesn't seem to be like a focus. So no, I think it's looked at as it's very elastic. And so people have to accommodate all kinds of things and they just throw one more thing in there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I agree with you. I think there's not a lot of sensitivity to the, just this, this, the tightness of the schedule and the difficulty in adapting for everybody's wishes, you know? Yeah. And the reminder that it's your project, right? It's your one project, but crew is typically going from project to project nonstop. Oftentimes now that there's no traditional production schedules like there used to be, especially in television, people are working year round. They are exhausted. I mean, we saw what happened last year with the the IA strike and the contract negotiations and I think there was this optimism early days of the pandemic that perhaps we would have found more humane working hours and working environments and better work-life balance and getting back to what matters. Because if people are showing up depleted with a chip on their shoulder, they're still going to do the job because they need to make money and and get their pension and health. But the journey of making that thing is just not going to be as fulfilling and you're going to feel it and it wears people down, right? So I wish I had the solution and the easy fix for it. I certainly don't, but it's something I'm very cognizant of constantly because I grew up alongside the crew, as I like to say, you know, so now that I'm in this role, it really is something I think about often of how can I bring that knowledge to this side of the business to help educate a little bit on how it is for a lot of people on the field, you know? Yeah. Okay. So then that was about 2014, according to my notes, when you left the executive world to go back to your first love of producing, you had your first look deal. At that time, what was it like? I feel like the industry, it's like a decade ago, it's changed so much. But do you feel like you were able to get a lot of things done that you wanted to do, especially as a female producer? There are very few female producers with deals. Exactly. Still, I think. Yeah. Well, first of all, producers with deals for features, it, it, that's gotten a lot, a lot skinnier. But even then, you know, when I went to Amy, I said, there's no female producers on this lot. And this is at a time when we had quite a few overall deals. And she said, is that true? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Then she became the fancy female producer on the lot, right? So there were two when there were zero. I think that it's if you're a producer who's not aligned with talent or if you're not talent yourself, I think it's really hard for women. And I think when there's a free ball for a movie that needs producers, really hard for women to get those jobs. They go to the dudes, give them to the dudes. That's really true. Do you feel like that's changed at all? Has it improved? I do not think it's improved. I don't. How do you think we can ever achieve true like gender parity? Do you you think it's possible? I think there has to be many more women in positions of decision-making and there aren't. Not in features now. In television, I think there are. In television, it's a, probably a little more equitable. I think probably women were able to make inroads in television, specifically like cable television and streaming, because dudes didn't take it seriously, right? It seemed like another thing. So then all of a sudden, it's a bigger, more important piece. And there are some women that are pretty well entrenched there and doing great work. In the movies, I feel like we've regressed. I mean, Donna Langley's wonderful. Pam Abdi, they're great. It just doesn't feel like there's Donna because she's been embedded there for a long time. You feel her, you feel her perspective on the movies that are made, but it's really mostly dudes. 
I mean, but do you feel like there's enough women coming up under them that are getting primed for those high level opportunities when they come? Or how do we really look at the pipeline so that in 10, 15, 20 years, we're not having the same conversation? Well, first of all, the old people, and I include myself, have to move out of the way, right? So right now, the studios are all being run by the youngest person's probably 55, 50. So when I was starting out, Scott Rudin was a president of production at 20th Century Fox, and we were both like 27. I made a movie for him, and he was the president. He was the president. Wow. And he was the same age as you. And he was the same age as me, right? We were both young. Now, I don't know that there's any equivalent version of that. So I would say as much as I want to fight for my fellow baby boomers, I think it's time for baby boomers to kind of make a little more space. And when you look at Warner Brothers, and I'm not saying any of these people aren't great at their job. They are great at their job. Alan Horn and John Goldwyn and Mike, and I don't know, David Zaslav. And those people are grownups. And maybe it would be exciting if those people were 40. I'm not saying they should be 25. I'm, But I don't know. It just feels like we haven't grown enough men or women to kind of come up and it'll have to happen. I mean, but do you think that in light of corporations coming in and just, you know, getting really entrenched in in our industry that anyone would give a, a shot to someone that young, perceivably, to step up to the plate? I think that's part of the problem. Part of the regression, right? It's like, how do you actually find progress if the money that's coming in is like the oldest, whitest money possible? Like... You just answered your own question. I don't know. You know, it's a rhetorical question. It's a sad question. But I mean, I'm optimistic. I feel like at least with my generation and younger, there's a lot of conversations, there's a lot of people pulling up other people and giving people opportunities. So I do feel like hopefully um, we can look back in 10 years and see maybe not as many people, women running studios or, or whatever as we'd like. But But definitely, I think we're on that path. I think there's a lot of awareness of it. So I think that's great. And that's fantastic. And and that's people of color and women and all. And I think there's a lot of awareness, but I think that it has to be. And I just was reading this thing about George Clooney and Grant Heslov and Brian Lord creating this academy within the high school to train young people to go into the movie business jobs. And that's what needs to happen. There has to be some sort of mentorship or apprenticeship for at all levels so that we could start feeding the pipeline with all kinds of people who share a certain interest or passion for making. Yeah, because I think that's the other part. Uh, One thing that does concern me is I don't see a lot of young people talking like, you know, mid-20s and younger entering the business like I used to, like, especially from a production standpoint, I think with the pandemic and the reality of what it's like to be a young person these days and and inflation and all the things in the reality of the world. um, I don't think a lot of people are coming out and shooting their shot and being down to like fight that fight, you know, and I do find that concerning. And so there's a lot of reasons for that, I think. But to your point, there's a big focus on our side over at Color Creative to help be a part of the pipe to fix the pipeline issue. I think that's great. Yeah, there's a program I've been really spearheading for a year now at the company that will announce next year that will hopefully be one path towards that solution that I'm very excited about. Because I think, yeah, if people don't know what jobs exist, especially within the production umbrella and what career paths there are, it's just not going to happen. People literally can be here, literally physically in LA and still not know 
the sort of like how nuanced some of these jobs can be, how specific and tailored to their interests, you know, within certain departments. And so really excited to help bridge that gap in whatever ways I can as well. And you know that it's like a closed system. So it has to be kind of cracked open a little bit because it's really a network. And so people know people. So that's how you get those jobs. So you have to populate it with new people who then know their people so that you can just grow it. Correct. That's the program is literally called the Find Your People program. That's exclusive. Exclusive. You've heard it here first. We've been doing some activations around this brand for a while. So it's not like nobody's seen it, but that is really what we're figuring out because that's the hardest part is finding your tribe, is finding your community. And if you don't have people that look like you, that understand your culture, your narrative and positions of power, like it's really hard to get anything up the pipeline. So it's a true ecosystem. It's not just one part. Like you can't just have a bunch of incredible filmmakers of color coming up the pipeline if there's no crew to support them, if there's no executives that are going to greenlight their movies, you know, if there are no producers that are going to help develop and shape these voices. And so it's a full 360. And um, I preach a lot about that because it... I think sometimes too much focus can just get put on the parts of the process that we see, the actors, the writers, the directors. Yes, there's a lot about like, well, we have to cast this person because this to balance out the racial equity of the of the whole thing. But it doesn't balance it out. It just looks like it balances it out. And it's like, what about just choosing to give a shot to storytellers that are already going to be naturally balancing it out without it having to be a mandate to make things look like some sort of ad for what diversity should feel like. It just is so backwards, but (laughs) so, you know, I'll stay optimistic. I'm still young enough that I think I have a little bit left of optimism in me, but I'll say, you know, I've been in LA 16 years pursuing our mad business and I still don't think I'm a cynical, bitter asshole. So I think there's hope for me, (laughs) but now I'm an executive. So who knows? We don't know. We'll see what, what comes on the other side of this. Don't go to the dark side. Don't do it. (laughs) What is the dark side? Do you think? Well, no, the dark side is the cynicism, really. The dark side is the bitterness and that uh, really can creep into people young and old. And it definitely creeps into people that, that feel, I mean, it's tough. It's just a rough business. And if you don't, if you're not up for that, then, and you want to be treated more nicely and maybe people will be more sensitive now, but basically it's pretty rough. Yeah, it is rough. I mean, how do you sustain, how have you held on to your integrity and not gone to the dark side of cynicism? I definitely have moments, but because basically it's like the best job ever. That's why. Yeah. Because you can feel bad or someone could make you feel bad by being dismissive or competitive or, or mean, but at the end of the day, like you're doing this great, fun job. Yeah. I think it's definitely worth it. But the highs are highs and the lows are lows. It's like that's the navigating the valleys of that, I think, is the the big challenge. And one of the things I'm really curious is in that spirit of how if there have been periods of your career where you have been in these valleys, how you've navigated them to keep going because it is the best job ever. Right. But we all have these periods where you're like, well, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like all the things for all the different reasons, especially when you are a woman who wants other parts of your life to be filled out as well. Right. So if you can talk a little bit about that. I think that one of the things that if I had to go back and change things as a woman for myself, I would be less people pleasing, but I believe that that is kind of like a go-to for women. And it took me a long time and I'm not even all like, I still definitely have that pathology, but I think that the people pleasing nature of women, women have to set stronger boundaries for themselves. 
so that I don't think that men feel that way that like, Oh, I, I mean, unless you want your boss to like you or think you're smart, but it's the trying to like, please people. I think that's a loser. And I think that when you realize that really most people can't be pleased in that way, then it's kind of liberating. And that's the way you should feel. You should always feel like I'm here to please myself and do a good job. They're not mutually exclusive, right? Just because I don't want to please people doesn't mean I'm not doing a good job or I'm not good at my job. But I I think that women don't set strong enough. And I think that's gotten better with younger women. Women have kids now. When I was young, I didn't know anybody that was my age that had kids. I didn't have any colleagues that had kids that were women. And there wasn't any group of like movie business mommies, or but there is now. And I think that that's a huge progress because then you don't feel so alone. And I think that the part, the deepest valleys, I think for women, the delta of that is where you feel like you're failing that job, the job of being a mom and a working mom and also not doing a good job at your job. That's when it's really despairing. And I think women are much better at that now. I was terrible at it in the beginning. At what point did you feel like you improved? Was there like a specific experience? Really recently, okay. like like not that long ago. And I don't know that I improved, but I was like, oh, nothing I do is going to change this person's mind. So I can just only do a good job. I can only do as good a job as I can do. If this person wants to call and yell at me, I don't know what else to do. I'm not going to persuade that person with words. I just have to do a good job. And that person is probably impossible to please. Yes, there's a lot of people like that. I always like to say, if you want to get into showbiz, go get a psychology degree because that's like going to serve you the best out of anything you can do because it's a lot, you know, it's I think it's it's an inherently emotional business. That's the thing. You have a lot of creatives and I resent the idea that executives and anyone who isn't traditionally perceived as a creative isn't inherently creative because they are. That's what drew them to the business in the first place. They all have other skills that they bring to the table that's at the forefront of what they present in their professional life. But it doesn't mean they too don't feel feelings in a, in a deep way or, or feel like the um, sort of recoil of rejection and all of that in the same vein, you know, and, and we're constantly dealing with this. I feel like it's 90% of the time getting sort of beat down by the the realities of how hard it is. And then everyone lives for that 10% when things are great. And when it's great, it's really, really good. You know, one of the main reasons I wanted to have this show is because I resent this idea that, especially as producers, there's this vision that people have or this image that conjures in someone's brain of person who makes all the money and it's like entourage or something, you know? And I really wanted people to understand the emotional realities of what it means to navigate this journey, especially as a woman, because I want them to be aware of what they're stepping into, not to dissuade them, just to inform them, because I struggled so much with this and I'm not like over it by any means. But I talk often on the show, just my own peaks and valleys and the perception, right, of success by others, which is fine. And when people are only seeing your highlight reel, but there's so much just darkness, I guess, frankly, that goes on behind the scenes of dealing with, especially for women, like self-worth being tied to job titles, to money, to opportunity, to who you're rubbing shoulders with in the business. And it can be really hard to detach because this business is like a lifestyle. It is not something you like are done at five o'clock on a Friday and you don't think about all weekend. Like you just 
it is all around you. It consumes you in all the best ways, but also sometimes in really bad ways where you can't, like I, I have certainly felt like I can't escape it and I have to physically get away from LA just to be reminded that there are other things people talk about at coffee shops than like scripts, you know? And so I bring that up because I, you know, think it's important to talk about those challenges and self-care. So I'm curious, what has that looked like for you, especially now? Well, I'm lucky. First of all, I'm from here, right? So I have a whole life outside of the movie business that I come from a big family. All my brothers and sisters are here. They all have children. Their children are having children. My husband's also from here. He also comes from a big family. They're my children's grandparents, everybody's so I'm not here to just work in the movie business. And I don't know what that would be like. And that seems really brutal because then that's all the people that you know, because that's what, because of course, those are the people that you know, those are the people you work with when you're young, that's who your friends are and who you fall in love with and whatever. But for me, I have, my husband's not in the movie business. It's just, it's not my 24 seven life at all. And never, ever was. And that may be a little bad too, because Maybe I wasn't doing enough of the other stuff that is required. But for me, I can't imagine just having to grind it out all the time and just have everything be about that. It would be really soul squashing. Yeah, I agree. And I, looking back, wish I could have given myself that knowledge a bit more just to create better habits when I was younger, you know, because it it, it is it can make you feel like whatever you're doing, it's never enough. There's always more to do. There's always more opportunities. You win an Oscar. They're like, what are you doing next? Like, it's like all of the big things you work for, especially nowadays, it's like sometimes people don't even know it comes out, like, because there's so much volume of stuff and it can get easy to get lost, lose your own self identity in that. And that's like a, a parting sort of wisdom. I hope the listeners take away is that like, I think regardless of age, just where you are, in your journey, it just sometimes can feel like you can never do enough. It's never good enough, even if you're at the top of your game. And a lot of women struggle with that. Absolutely. Now, I taught screenplay development for producers in UCLA in the master's program. Oh, amazing. And I taught only taught it for one quarter because it was a lot, a lot of work and I was working. But I recommended, I put on my syllabus whether these kids read these books or not, I have no idea. I doubt it. But there are a couple really good books on producing. So the first one, and I'm not sure it's still in print, it's by the producer Art Linson. It's my favorite book on producing. And it's just fantastic. A Pound of Flesh. A Pound of Flesh. Okay. Yes. He has another book after that, which I don't think is as good. But A Pound of Flesh, I think is fantastic. There is another, there's a Sidney Lumet book. He's a director called Making Movies that is also fantastic. And the other book that I would have people read if they're interested in development, right? So first of all, I think development is a skill that can be learned. I don't think just because people feel creative, they have the skill set to develop screenplays and to talk to writers. I would recommend that anybody developing screenplays take read at least a screenplay writing book but take a screenplay writing class because I think it really, there's, it's a craft and it's not simply understood because you like to go to movies. Right. <laughs> so I would also, there's an, A. Scott Berg is a, is a wonderful nonfiction writer. And this is the first book he wrote about the editor of like F. Scott Fitzgerald and Ernest Hemingway. The name of the book is Editor of Genius and it is about Max Perkins. That's another great book to read. And I think 
the other book that I love that is another great book about movies is called Pictures at the Revolution. These are great. I got to say, I've never heard of most of these. So that's exciting. Okay. They're all fantastic. And Pictures at the Revolution is by Mark Harris, who is a great, he is the husband of, of the screenwriter and playwright, Tony Kushner. He is a really, really wonderful film writer. And he used to do reviews. He doesn't anymore. He just writes about movies. He just did the Mike Nichols biography. But Pictures at the Revolution is his masterpiece. It's a great book. There's also a great documentary called The Story of Film. It's like eight parts. Wow. Okay. Last but not least, Martin Scorsese does a film class. Like it's like, it's a documentary that he does. I don't know what the name of that one is, but it's fantastic. So I would think producers, this is movie producers, obviously. This is not like, you know, if you want to make the Big Bang Theory and I'm not judging, you don't need all this backstory. But the Art Linson book on sort of the nuts and bolts of producing and the Sydney Lumet book on the nuts and bolts of directing. And of course, any book by William Goldman, I would read. So I think it's really important to understand how people approach their jobs, because as a producer, you have to manage all the different disciplines as they come in. Yeah, absolutely. And, and yeah, I think there's also a big shift if you're coming in the development side versus coming up in production and then crossing over. And I think it, for me, that's been the biggest learning curve in this role because I spent most of my career in production is just now really starting to understand this other side of the process and the players and what they need and how to talk to them. It's just a very different ball game, honestly. And it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. And I mean, I'm curious though, because so when you went out back to producing, were there any big challenges that you faced like in making that decision or in entering? Were there any obstacles? How was how were you perceived in the business? I think that I have a good reputation. And so I don't think I, I, it wasn't, I didn't have a hard time. Plus I had some projects to start because I, I had jump started it with some projects. So the only thing that's hard is, is getting the movies made. Yeah, that is the hardest part. Why do you think that is? Because you have to separate people from their money. And, you know, nobody really wants to make the movie and throw that money out there that they could lose. So it's been hard since the pandemic. I was making a movie when the pandemic shut us down in Budapest. And, you know, that was, and then we went back. I, we didn't make that movie, but I went back to Europe and made another movie. But was that The Nightingale? Is that what you were shooting out there? The Nightingale is what got shut down. And then I think the pandemic has made it really hard. It's like all of the work and none of the fun parts. Yeah. For sure. I feel like this year, especially like I know last year from everyone I spoke to, they were saying how in spite of the pandemic, 2021 was some of the highest year on record. Like I spoke to buddies at like Coyote and Panavision and they're like, we did more money. We made more sales, more rentals last year than we ever have in the history of the company, which is insane, but also speaks to like, yes, people aren't spending the money, but they are. And they're also spending it and 90% of what is being made isn't great because it's not being taken the time to develop things properly isn't being taken. It is a craft. You know, when people think about some of the best pieces of art that come out that they're like, oh my God, like season one of Stranger Things or Get Out, right? People forget that like took Jordan Peele eight years to figure out how to make that script what it was, right? That and So it's not like you can just be like, hey, write something else amazing in the next year. Like there's a lack of knowledge, I guess, or visibility for the craft and what it really takes to create things at that level. So people are like constantly disappointed and in just... So many of my friends who aren't in the business are just like, 
Hollywood doesn't make anything good anymore. And they're just making remakes and reboots of everything. And I'm like, yeah, I don't disagree. But also, are you showing up for the few independent films that are getting the few far in between getting theatrically released? No, you're still going to see the Marvel movie, even though you walk out of there saying, well, that sucked. It's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. The money's already in the bank account for those guys. Like, it, you know, so I get a little defensive when people talk about that because I'm like, well, you're not really contributing to the solution. And that is the only thing, the metric that people use. We're again talking about films to really green light and give people some of these opportunities, you know? And so if you are committed to the impact, you make that change with your wallet. That's really what it is. So I get flustered by it. Yes, it's true. It's, it's, I mean, movie before the pandemic movies were, people were not, had stopped going to the movies. Like we talk about it as if the pandemic was the cause of that. It's not true. No, it just accelerated a slow death, frankly, of the theaters. And it's because, you know, younger generations, they get together with their friends and watch stuff on Netflix or they're on their phones watching. It's just a different thing. Like I am from a time before the internet. I am from a time when you would meet your friends on a Friday at a mall and look at all the movie posters and just randomly decide which movie you were going to see. And not all of them are great, but one day you got to vote and you saw the romantic comedy. The next day your friend voted. The next week your friend voted and you saw the horror film. So you always were exposed to so many more different kinds of films. I think it just also expanded your mind a little more and just tolerance and like watching other people create things. And I'm nostalgic for those times, but (laughs) it's just different. Back in my day, I just feel like... (laughs) Well, you know what? The exhibition destroyed movies too. They had a hand in it because exhibition was pretty shitty, expensive and shitty. You go to the movie theaters, it's noisy, it's smelly, the frame is out, the, you know, it's not, it's off the screen. There's nobody to fix it. The sound is terrible. And you've done a lot. You've done so much advertising to get all those people to your movie And then you've worked so hard on the movie itself. And the posts to make sure everything is exactly right. Yeah. And then you watch it in a movie theater and you're like, how did this happen? Right? Yeah. Exhibition just sort of strip mined everybody's enthusiasm because they made it so unpleasant to actually go to the movie. Right. And when you have right TVs and sound systems in your home that kind of direct competition with that experience you really, really have to want to leave the comforts of your home and your couch and your clean house or wherever it is you are to go sit in a theater and be like a gamble and then also spending like $20 a movie ticket, right? In most markets. So I get it. I totally get it. I hope there's some type of resurgence and and it's not just exclusively limited to tentpole movies that are these big theatrical experiences, but you know, I'm also not holding my breath for that. So talk to me a little bit about the transition from having your own deal at Sony and then now, as of this year, being the president of Bisous Pictures, which is a, the romance label of MRC and just that transition and and what you're up to. Well, it's a deal. It's a, it's a deal unlike, not unlike the other deal. It's just that my, my lane is narrow. I'm just doing romance movies, sort of what they say, elevated romance movies, because there's certainly a lot of romance. It isn't like there's not romance on right, right, streamers. Right. Originally, when we constructed the deal with MRC and those guys, it was their idea to do it. And God bless them. It was for theatrical, like 50-50 theatrical and then um, streaming. And then after 2020, it was clearly it's not going to be theatrical unless all of a sudden we're making George Clooney and Julia Roberts or something like that. 
but mostly the movies are, you know, under $20 million and they're romantic, either comedies or romantic dramas, but they're romances. So I have a lot in development and they're all mostly for streaming. So we're just packaging them and, and taking them out. So I have Nick Sparks and Ellen Hildebrand and this other great new young voice in romance, Allie Hazelwood. And so I've been buying some books and then I have had some original scripts written and we're just figuring it out. Yeah. And are you loving it? We already made Persuasion. Yeah, I love it. I love to make movies where people kiss. I don't think there's enough movies where people kiss. That's true. I can't believe people aren't kissing in movies. That's the whole, one of the reasons to go to the movies is to watch those people kiss. (laughs) It blows my mind how few movies, I mean, A Star is Born, a great movie about people kissing. But since then, not really. That's true. It's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like to, see movie stars kiss in movies again so yeah yeah absolutely i'm gonna keep trying well i think you're on your way if anyone could do it it's you you're 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 in that lane do you find that now being in a narrow lane to use your words do you find that refreshing because you really have one more singular focus or do you find yourself yearning to still look at other types of material both of those things are true and yes and (laughs) yes and it's easier in the marketplace to have a defined kind of purview because that's you get that material and then you're not looking at a bunch of movies about assassins or you know something crazy you know but i had made as an executive and as a producer some narrative nonfiction that i loved and so i miss doing that i made a couple of action movies i don't miss doing action movies that much they're hard but I would love to try to figure out female-led action movie. We just haven't, except for Angelina Jolie, we haven't quite figured it out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we are reaching the end of our time together. I have two more questions for you before we get to the lightning round. The first is, you know, just career highlights. Like you've done so many incredible things in your career. When you look back, what are some of those that were massive for you on a personal level, professional level? And do you still feel like when you look back on them that you have more left to accomplish? Yeah, I feel like I have a lot more left to accomplish for sure. And I think that there is a couple of anecdotes, you know, when I worked on that movie Galaxy Quest, which we loved and we made in Hollywood on five sound stages and with giant stars and visual effects and costumes and built costumes and that was a real highlight. That was real, truly like living a dream, driving to a studio lot every day and making that movie with crazy monsters and all kinds of things and and funny and it was fun. And we had a great time making that movie and I'm proud of that movie and people still love it. So people call and ask me about it. I've been in documentaries about it. It was bizarre. (laughs) So that was really, really fun. That was a highlight. Another true highlight was getting the opportunity to work on James Bond movies when we, they reset it with Daniel Craig. So it wasn't just James Bond. My fiance is obsessed. So yeah, he's, he's, I have to start watching all the Bond movies work backwards it might be a little more fun yeah working on such like an an iconic property like that what was that like fun just fun it was a you know hard whatever but it was so fun and and you felt like we were doing something that would be remembered like that we cast him and that wasn't our idea that was barbara broccoli's idea and um but he's magnificent and it was just fun you felt like you were being part of like a, a historical bunch of films that was super fun i'm curious to see where the franchise goes next yeah me too in light of all the things um, 
Well, fantastic. I mean, I think we'll, we'll wrap on before the lightning round. Just the advice question I always like to ask, you know, specifically for filmmakers and, and producers who listen to the show in this current market, in this current time we're living in, what advice do you have for them as far as how they go about pursuing their dreams? Well, I mean, I would kind of go back to what I've already said, which is like, do your homework, prepare yourself for all your meetings, prepare yourself with your, don't shoot from the hip. It's work. And people know the difference between people that do the work and don't do the work, especially now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's very, very good advice. Well, we're going to move to this lightning round. As I mentioned, it's just a quick, fun little questions I like to end the show with. So we will get started. Okay. The first question is, what's a song that teleports you to a happy place? A song that teleports me to a happy place? That's so funny that you asked me that. It's raining men. (laughs) Love it. Okay. What is the latest piece of art that moved you? A book, a film, a show, et cetera. I will tell you this book that I read, this Susan Orlean book about the called The Library. I don't know if you know this book, but it's nonfiction. And it's about the LA County Library. And it's a little bit of a mystery because it burned down. But it, it burned, it didn't burn down, but it burned in the, I guess it was the 80s. But what the function of a library is in our current society and as a gathering place and a place for a refuge and a place for intellectual stimulation and a place for art and all the things, what a library provides in a city or in a town is so important. And it's so moving because it feels old fashioned, but it's actually essential for the beating heart of any place. And so the idea that we're talking about closing things like that, public places like that, that are necessary for people's inner life, as well as some people's survival, everybody should read that book too. That's incredible. I hadn't heard of it. I'm a huge library nerd, like growing up, that was my happy place. My mom will talk about it. Like in South Florida, we had massive libraries. They were like college campus sized libraries, like walking distance from where I lived. And I would just be in there for hours and hours and get lost. It was like my favorite place in the world. Do they still have them? I hope they still do even with that. Oh yeah. They still have a lot of them down there for sure. But like growing up, that was like what I would always ask my mom to like take me to the library after school. But I'm a bit of a nerd, you know, that's always been my happy places within stories. So it's kind of unsurprising. I ended up in the career path that I'm in because that's where I was always the happiest. Okay. So the next question is fill in the blank when I'm overworked. Blank helps ease the stress. (laughs) (laughs) Talking to my kids. Perfect. What is one of the most worthwhile investments you've ever made? And it doesn't have to be financial. Oh, well, again, that would be my kids for sure. 100% my kids. Love it. So, okay, people often think producers lead glamorous lives, right? Their day-to-day is filled with red carpets, champagnes, fancy dinners, celeb hangs. Who thinks that? A lot of people think this. And we know that's not true. So what would you say is one common unglamorous part of the job that you experience? 5 a.m. in a van with a bunch of dudes going to <laughs> scout a location or go to shoot on a location in the yeah. you know, middle of the winter in the middle of Northern Europe. I mean, no, there's a million unglamorous things. It is for the most part <laughs> unglamorous. Yes. Awesome. Here's the last thing that I will say about women producers. When I was coming up, the women producers, female producers had a 
thing called the Hollywood Women's Political Committee. And their whole thing was to protect women's rights. And after Bill Clinton became president, it sort of pulled the rug out because we didn't have anything to, they didn't have anything to push up against because it was Ronald Reagan and prior to that. And now I feel like young women producers better get on their horses and better start pulling in the cavalry because women in the country are being persecuted by this government, not the administration of Joe Biden, but just for women rights to choose. It's all part of a a whole, an infrastructure that is being built that is about putting women back. So if you want to talk about how women can like get ahead in Hollywood, women have to like join together and like make a a group of women that like in my days, the women that were older than me were like Jane Fonda, Paula Weinstein. These women were like badasses and they were really working hard to push, push, push on behalf of women. Now I feel like there's some sort of complacency and also a little bit of a stigma around being a feminist. And I don't, I think it's a mistake. If it wasn't for those women who were straight up balls out feminists, you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here, right? Lady cops wouldn't be here. Lady pilots wouldn't be here. Like younger women better, better, better start pulling together to make it happen. Yeah, no rallying. I I agree. It's a massive call to action that impacts us beyond just this business. It's a hundred percent bigger than that. It's our lives. It's not just this business. So yes. All right. So here's the final question. It's a question I love that I borrow from Inside the Actress Studio, which is one of my favorite shows growing up. And the question, which was inspired by the famed French journalist Bernard Pivot, this is the question that he famously ends his interviews with, which is, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I would like God to say to me, oh, come on in, your mom and dad are over there. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. This has been so lovely, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your life to share a little bit about your journey with me and the listeners. It only happens with a a person like yourself saying yes to being on the other side and being down to engage in these conversations. They're really helpful to many, many that listen. So thank you so much. I will hopefully see you soon. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much for tuning in and doing this life thing with me. If you like the show, please don't forget to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. I'm at Carolina Gropa. The show's at Angle on Producers. And I'll see you next week. Beijos. <laughs>